Okay, so this is an amazing thing that, that, that we're experiencing right now. And it lies a lot in what we started to speak about when we spoke a little bit about Purim and we discussed this idea of a text and a subtext. And the fact that there's, in, in a world, there's a lot of, um, a lot of, there's a lot of um, room for interpretation, ambiguity, confusion. Call it, for want of a better word, darkness, because we live in a world where it's not clear as to um, how things are actually connected. Cause and effect is not fully evident. And we live in a world where the external cause and effect can be very misleading. And I'm going to begin by discussing a simple cause and effect, which is the laws of nature. Before we get into the laws of society and the laws of business and the laws of the global infrastructure as a whole. But the laws of nature. So things in the natural world function exceptionally smoothly with cause and effect. In fact, the cause and effect is so smooth that you can step back, study it, and derive laws of biology and science. Because what we do when we, we, we look for patternings, we look for consistent behavioral patterns, and then from that we deduce theories and then we can implement them and uh, activate inventions and change the way that the world works as a whole. So that's, that's, what, um, that's really what innovation, in, invention and science and plotting the natural cause and effect is all about. Now, there's the standard way of perceiving that cause and effect. Sorry, one sec. The standard way of perceiving that cause and effect is to look at it as a fixed, unmovable entity. And that the laws of nature have, as it were, a life of their own. And we are bound by them. And if I decide one day that I would like to jump off a building and fly, it ain't going to work because there's a law of gravity which flies in the face of my desire to, to fly. And when we look at the world, the, the unbreakable laws of nature, what happens is we, a, we give to nature a certain sovereignty, dominion, rulership, that nature rules. And when nature rules, there's nothing that can break the rulership. And now with that in mind, we go back to Egypt. Now, going back to Egypt is a very powerful, both historical and impacts on the contemporary way of perceiving the world. Because the whole point of the focal um, nature of Pesach, of Egypt in the Jewish consciousness, is much more than just a recollection of a uh, rather impressive historical, historical event. By now you know that Judaism is not a religion, it's not an ism, it's a way of being. So why would Egypt play such an important part in this, in this kind of uh, paradigm? So let's, I'll refer to a fascinating thing which I think captures the, the centrality of Egypt in our, in our world. When Ben-Gurion was pleading for a Zionist state, a Jewish state in, in the era which was then called Palestine, he presented an argument to the United Nations. And his argument was that if you take the average American child 
and the first boat of pilgrims that, arri that arrived on American shore was called the Mayflower. And you ask them a little bit about the Mayflower. For example, what day did the Mayflower leave the English shores? What kind of clothing were the people in the Mayflower wearing? What food did they eat? Your average American child is going to have absolutely no knowledge as to, to, to that information. If you ask the average Jewish child who has some connection to his legacy and heritage, when did the Jews leave Egypt? So, you know, it could be in today's days of rapid assimilation, it's not as accurate as it was when Ben Gurion made this pro proclamation, but when he said it, and it wasn't that long ago, um, when he said it, let's say it was 72 years ago. So when he said it, he said, you can go to any Jewish child from Yemen to New York and ask, ask them, what day did the Jews leave Egypt? And they'll tell you on the 15th of Nisan. And you'll say to them, and what were the Jews wearing? And they'll say to you, well, they were very hastily dressed because they left in a hurry. And what food did they eat? Well, they ate matzahs. And said Ben-Gurion, that's 3,000 years later. And then you ask them another question. You say to them, and where were you going to? And they say, we're going to the land of Israel. We're going to the promised land. And that's our journey. So Ben-Gurion, with that, gave a historical power to the Jewish claim to the land of Israel. It's not something which was um, a forgotten fact of history, a relic of the past. It's something which is alive and kicking in our day and age. And little did he know, in the next 72 years, so that dream has become a reality where we're living in a flourishing Jewish homeland. But let's go back to Egypt. Isn't that amazing? Isn't it amazing that we still even have in our vocabulary that the Jews were slaves in Egypt? I mean, how many nations keep in the collective memory such a distant historical fact? What is it? What is it? What, what captivates us about Egypt, that it's integrated into every fabric of our observance and awareness that we have to wake up in the morning and recollect the fact, you know, you're in Egypt. And before you go to sleep at night, you have to remember, you know, you were slaves in Egypt. And we put on filling, and in the filling it says, this is what happened when you're in Egypt. And we put on our arms and put on the head and the face towards our heart, the mind, action, emotion, all involved in this. And Sukkot is to remember what happened after we left Egypt. We're wandering in the desert. And Shavuot is a climactic point from Pesach until then, that's when we receive the Torah. All interlinked. And Shabbat is Zeichel Letziat Mitzrayim, to remember the Exodus from Egypt. And it's funny because Shabbat changes. This last Shabbat we celebrate was called Shabbat Hagadol. Why was it Shabbat Hagadol? Because until the point in time that we reached that climactic exodus from Egypt, Shabbat recollected the creation. But after Egypt, we say that Shabbat, Shabbat refers to the exodus. It's no, longer, um, it's no longer the God that made the world. It's the God that freed you from Egypt. And that's why... The Ten Commandments, the first of the Tenth Commandment is, I'm Hashem who took you out of Egypt. Not who made the heavens and the earth. It's all over the show. And it's so integrated into our consciousness as a people that the Seder night for thousands of years has been a captivating curriculum that hasn't changed. And people have got strong memories about the Seder night. Very powerful memories. It's phenomenally well-designed to evoke 
a sense of real transmission from father to son, grandfather to grandson, or even great-grandfather to great-grandson. So what is it about Pesach? What's a big deal? Why is it a big deal? And the 10 plagues, and you remember the 10 plagues, what, what's, a, what's it about the 10 plagues? So I want to go back to our original point where we discussed the idea of nature. And we said nature is an unbreakable cause and effect. Let's go back to Egypt. According to the laws of nature, um, there's two ways of understanding the plagues and the occurrences in Egypt. Number one, we could understand it as a war. Nature takes up arms against Hashem. And Hashem, being the powerful creator that he is, manages to overcome the powers of nature and beat them in a battle. The water in the Nile proclaimed, I will run as water. And Hashem twisted the arm of the Nile to become blood. In that version, there's not one God, but two. There's nature and there's God. And they're in a wrestling match. And then if you see Egypt that way, you see that Hashem is stronger and you celebrate the miraculous. But that goes against the basic tenet of Jewish understanding, which is the unity of Hashem, and that there's nothing in the world that isn't Hashem. There's nothing in the world that isn't Hashem. Well, there's nothing in the world that isn't Hashem. What was, what was the whole, what were the plagues about? That's exactly what they were about. They were very precisely demonstrating in every element of the created world that what appears to be nature is simply a smokescreen. And at the click of a finger, it can be completely changed, adjusted. Water flowing down the Nile, perfect calm water. One lifting of the staff of iron, and that water transforms to blood. Not red liquid, not like water-colored red, but when you picked it up, you could feel that thick consistency and that smell of blood. All of a sudden, there's this plague of frogs from nowhere. And there was this bizarre thing about the plague of frogs. The way it began, and this is an interesting psychological insight into the way we deal with lives. The way it began was there was this gigantic frog. And the Egyptians, in their fury, hit the frog angrily. As a result, it gave birth to more frogs. And the more they hit it, the more frogs came. And the more frogs came, the more they hit it. Welcome to the world of anger. The world of anger is when you start doing something which is so counterproductive, and when you see how counterproductive it is, you get even more angry, and you continue on that same. But that was just one aspect. So there was like this massive swarm of amphibians all over the place. And then these tiny, the, the earth of the land changes to lice. And it's, it's terrible, but you see that the, the, slowly but surely, the world as we know it is sabotaged by a higher force. So what does that mean? What it means is not that God is stronger than nature. It means there is no such thing as nature. Nature is a illusion that is there to hide us from the fact that there's a powerful creator that runs every single aspect of the universe. And would it not be for the fact that it was hidden, we'd be bound, inevitably, we'd be, lose any sense of freedom of choice to discover 
the rich dimensions of the spiritual world for ourselves, we would be absolutely compelled to bow down and acknowledge them. So therefore, there's a smoke screen that's created in order that we should be able to move forward and do the discovery on our own accord and to own it for ourselves. And nature is just there to delude us into thinking that there can be a godless world. And many people fall for that trick. And therefore, the Jews didn't want to fall for that trick. So Hashem says, follows, I'm going to give you the greatest gift ever. Once and once only, I'm going to take the curtain, I'm going to move it aside. And I'm going to dissolve that smoke screen. And I'm going to open up what's actually going on. I'm going to tell you what's actually going on. And this whole kind of purported cause and effect, it's all a joke. It's all an illusion. It doesn't really work that way. But I'm only going to do it once. And after I've done that once, because it's such a crucial, powerful, and vital necessity, and upon it rests all our belief systems, and the nature of how we interact with the world where we believe God's in charge, because that is such a fundamental point of our existence, I'm going to do it once, and I would really like to do it every generation. But then, people lose their freedom of choice. So what I'm going to do is, I'm going to do it once, and then I'm going to go back to the old system. But I'm going to leave you with the impression of what really exists behind the scenes, and then I'm going to say to you, make sure you never ever, ever, ever forget it. And how am I going to guarantee that? How am I going to make that ironclad? Well, I'm going to say, teach your children. How often? Once in the morning, once at night. Put them on your arms and your heads, connected to all the aspects of your being to remember it. Have the celebration once a year when the night that it happened, get together and retell the story. So that if you think about it this way, if at a Seder there was a, um, a grandfather or a great-grandfather and a great-grandson, which is not such an unlikely occurrence in, in your average Seder, and the great-grandfather told his great-grandson, you know, there was this thing that happened in Egypt. It's only about 30 people chain going back to the original Exodus. It's not that far. It's only 30 people ago, so maybe 50, maybe 100. But our connection to Egypt, even though 3,000 years sounds like a long time, from Seder to Seder, from three generations passing by, it actually goes a lot, lot quicker. And it's a lot, lot closer than we would imagine. So therefore, Torah said, on that night, relive, re-experience, and retell. And every time you retell it, you know what you're doing? You're creating this link, connecting present generation to the previous generation to the past generation all the way back until a person on that night of Pesach has to look at himself as if he left, he left Egypt. Now the way you can look at yourself as you live in Egypt is one of two ways. I'm sure pretty all of us sitting in the room, you guys here, there, me here, um, I think most of us are of Eastern, linea- Eastern European lineage. Is that, is that right? Yeah. Okay, Sam's a bit dodgy, but okay. But the point is, what would happen if I would know? What would happen if my grandmother, my great, my great, my grandmother, um, my great grandmother would not have left Latvia? So do you know where I would be today? I'd be in Latvia. So through them leaving, I also left. Now, what would have happened had this whole historical event turned out differently? You know, there's this expression that's called. Um, uh, hindsight bias. We may have spoken about it before. 
hindsight bias is that when you look at historical events, you can predict the cause and effect. Sure, because they've already happened. It's easy to have hindsight bias because you don't realize when you have hindsight that at the time, anything could have gone in a multiple series of directions. So the way we irrationally respond to the world is things that happened are always going to happen that way. Where at the time, nothing was clear at all and was based on people's choices that things were directed in a particular way and not in another way. So in, without taking away hindsight bias, imagine the different ending to the story of Egypt, that there were Jewish people enslaved in Egypt, and um, nothing changed. Over the course of the, was one of the mightiest empires, and over the course of the generations, they became the slave population, and they were perpetuated the slave population forever. And then the, the four of us would not be sitting down today discussing this. But something shifted, something radical shifted. There was a revolution, something which was unanticipated, something which was unique came along and shifted that. And therefore, when that shifted, it shifted not only then, but it's shifted everything since then, including me right here and you right there. So this idea of Pesach is reconnecting to the notion of there is no such thing as nature, nature which means life is inevitably flexible. And that means there's nothing that is unexpected. In the world of Egypt, imagine how people felt. We have a taste of it now. They had no idea what the next day would bring. They had no perception. They had no way of predicting where it would be going. Reflecting on our present situation, we're living in a world now where there's, again, very little predictability. We have no idea where this um, COVID-19 will be taking us. We have no idea what the financial implications are, what the long-term health implications are for all of us. Um, we have no idea in terms of career. We don't know what's changed. And now, now that online learning has become the rule and not the exception, if perhaps a lot of educational systems will just switch to online teaching, we have no way to anticipate what's going to happen in the world beyond. In relation to that, it's loosened our grip on what we would have imagined to be the solidity of our cultural and... Um, communal script. And what I mean by that is as follows. It's almost as if when we're born, we're given a script to read. And the script says, when you are um, three, go to nursery school. When you are five, go to preschool. When you're six, go to grade one or whatever age you into, into grade one. Do that, primary school, tertiary school, secondary school, and then get a tertiary education. Enter into the work world and make enough money to put a roof over your head and have a comfortable life in order that you can then send your children to preschool, primary school, secondary school, tertiary education, in order that they can in turn send their children and so on and so forth and so on and so forth. And then all of a sudden, boom, there's a span in the works. And the amazing thing about span in the works is everything stops and you think, whoa, 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 stop, rethink, rethink. Is this what it's meant to be? Is there something beyond it? Are we just perpetuating an everlasting um, treadmill that we're just going around and we, and we were working, everything's going really fast, but we're not really getting anywhere. It looks like we're getting something, but we're not really getting anywhere. And then all of a sudden, collapse. And now we recognize, you know, that this predictability is not ironclad. And really, it's just an illusion because one tiny little virus can bring the world to a halt in a few weeks. So now that makes me step back with a little bit of reverence and a little bit of awareness, and a little bit of 
resilience and a little bit of, wow, how can you be adaptable? And then I internalize that idea in terms of my own life. And I say to myself, well, one second, if this life that I subscribe to can collapse very easily, well, then what is it that's real? If that can fall down, so it can't be that it's real, because real means something that will always last. And something that collapses fundamentally not real. I want something fundamentally real. So how do I find reality? Reality is the thing that remains when everything else collapses. It's a thing that still exists. That's real. And anything which can be discarded, removed, so then it's not reality. Um, it's just a temporary accessory to reality. And so now this is a fascinating reflection for us. Pesach is about the unpredictability of the cause of nature, that there's a higher force that essentially decides. Generally, that higher force hides itself behind predictability. And sometimes it shifted a lot. In Egypt, it shifted it dramatically, and that's why we internalize it. But sometimes there's a gentle shift, not as intense as 10 plagues, but enough to start us thinking maybe we have to go beneath the surface and seek out a deeper sense of connection to a higher realm. And that, I think, is the connection between what we're going through now and Pesach. Because I think what we're going through now is a challenge to all of us. It's a challenge for us to acknowledge that we're not in control. Step number one can just be relinquishing our control. Step number two could be engaging in an active dialogue with Hashem and trying to figure out um, what's going on in terms of my own life and how is this impacting me. Because of course there's a global message, but I think there's a personal message as well. The message which has given me now the time and the space to contemplate and to reevaluate everything which I took for granted in my life. And the minute I can start to reevaluate and recognize there's actually nothing I can take for granted. Like, for example, for me, diving in a minion, no. Having Pesach Seder together with my family, no. Having the ability to go and shop, not really. Having the ability to go out for a run as far as I like, no. Doing Tai Chi in the park, none of that. So all of a sudden, I have to think to myself, whoa, whoa, whoa. This is really kind of perplexing. So when all that stuff is gone, what's left of me inside? What remains? What's the real me? Where's the real me? Where's the real me? And if you ask me what I really think that Hashem's doing, and I have no idea what Hashem's doing, but something which I think is a global, uh, you know, what my, my, impact, my impression has been that there's, there's, there's a global sense of, taking a deep breath and just thinking, well, okay, wow, we're going, we're going way too fast. We're actually going way too fast. We, we never really had any time to think and to contemplate and to, to really like reevaluate who are we and who are these people that we're living with and where we're going and why are we going there and all that kind of stuff. Um, so that's, that's kind of uh, some thoughts that I had. Um, but I'd love to hear what you guys have to say and questions and uh, yeah, uh, I've unmuted you, Dom. Okay. <coughs> um, do you think? <laughs>